Welcome to the Resonance Cast from Allegra Lab. I'm Ian M. Cook. In this podcast series, we discuss articles published by Allegra Lab that resonate with one another. We invite the authors to read each other's papers and then to come together to talk with someone from the Allegra Lab Editorial Collective. In this episode of Resonance Cast from Allegra Lab, yeah, hello everyone. My name is Pascal Schild. I'm a social anthropologist, mainly working in the field of political anthropology. Currently, I'm a visiting researcher at SOAS University of London at the South Asia Institute. I do research on transnational Kashmiri activism and the politics of civil society peace initiatives for Kashmir. I'm going to talk about uh, my piece entitled Reciprocal Vulnerability in the Face of Patriarchal Violence. Hi everyone, so my name is Sandia Fuchs and I'm an anthropologist and my work looks at potential of human rights law and anti-discrimination hate crime law to sort of address wider structural inequalities and I work in India and I work with Dalit communities which are ex-untouchable communities and I'm currently at the University of Bern as a postdoctoral researcher And uh, before that, I just finished my PhD at the LSE in London. And the piece I'll be talking about today is called Strange Bedfellows on Trauma and Ethnographic Vulnerability. So we're going to start our conversation today by having both Pascal and Sandhya discuss, um, well, introduce really the text that they've published on Allegra this week, just to give us a short overview, specifically the two instances that push you to reflect on vulnerability and how it played out during anthropological ethnographic fieldwork. So which of you would like to go first? Okay, then. Yeah, my piece is about the death of one of my research partners during fieldwork for my PhD in uh, Pakistani administrated Azad Kashmir. It was a young woman um, who was forced into marriage and then committed suicide by self-immolation. This tragedy happened, yeah, literally before our eyes. We saw her burn and how she injured herself so badly that she died in hospital a few days later. And yeah, her death shook me so deeply that I was, in fact, unable at first to reflect on it in any professional anthropological way. So I struggled with the complex of difficult and difficult feelings um, of, of grief, powerlessness, fear, feeling unsafe, but also shame and guilt for not um, doing anything against this violence. So the, the, the process of anthropological reflection that came later after fieldwork and also after my PhD. And I think, think it, it uh, really took me time to gain also the self-confidence to write about it. It did not, or I did not have that confidence during my time as a PhD student, which was very precarious in a way. And, and yeah, I also felt that the story did not fit anywhere into my PhD. And, and honestly, I mean, I, I think that no, one's, no one wants to hear stories like that and nobody wants to tell them because um, they make us look weak and vulnerable and, and yeah, not how we would like to be seen uh, by others mentally strong as professionals and who know how to deal with the challenges of, of fieldwork. But the, the, the thing is that we 
we very often face challenges in the field uh, to which we do not have a straightforward answer. And I think that this uncertainty, um, of course, in, involves many different uneasy experiences. Um, yeah, and well, now despite the, the trauma, I, I try to think now in my piece um, of my vulnerability is as productive nonetheless, in the sense that it related me to my vulnerable research partners, that it brought us together, that it created and also intensified uh, solidarities. Um, so what I actually want to say is that vulnerability is not only about precarious lives and powerlessness, but that it also fosters social exchange between the anthropologists and their interlocutors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you so much. And before we move on to Sanjay and really maybe talk about some of the, the things you made, I'm wondering, because you, you wrote about it quite movingly um, in the text, could you maybe just tell us a little bit more details about about this particular moment, like uh, who your um, interlocutor and, and friend was and, and, and what created this moment of extreme vulnerability and, and feeling of, um, yeah, an inability to act? Well, it was a woman I um, interacted with quite often during my field work, and I um, really visited her a lot. She was a student, and um, we were quite close in a way. I also went on a long uh, a visit to her village um, for about, I think, a couple of days it was, and um, yeah, we, we, no one, also me and also all the others, um, neighbors, we, we, we really didn't know about her marriage or that that would be coming up soon. And she also never talked about that. And uh, it was a day I wanted to visit her and uh, there were sitting um, a lot of men in the courtyard. And I thought, okay, what's going on here? I probably should not visit her today. There is something going on. So I then uh, went to the neighbor's house and they then told me, well, her marriage is taking place. And with this story, I then went to another friend and I told her that the next day. And yeah, that is when it then happened. And uh, when uh, we uh, suddenly saw, um, saw the fire and, and, and went there. Um, so and from the from actually from the first moment when we went there, some women told us, "Well, we smell patrol," and that is also a way how they told us that well, that is not an accident. That is something else. That is a forced suicide, in fact, or that the, the girl committed suicide. That she set herself on fire. And um, I mean, this uh, truth about her death circulated then in the form of rumors in the neighborhood. But there was no public outcry, and that shook me, actually, also, that there was a silence. I mean, there was talk about it, but still it was actually silence and um, no uh, police investigation or nothing. I mean, there was just nothing to to do justice to that woman. And um, I think all of my other research partners, they were very... um, um, scared actually when they uh, found out what what happened and um, it was a very scary situation because what happened to that woman uh, it meant that it could happen to to them as well and probably to me as well so that suddenly this feeling of of, of being highly unsafe that came um, and and yeah it was so shocking and it, it really needed some time to 
<clears throat> to digest it. <laughs> yeah, I can I can completely imagine, and and yeah, we can hear the emotion in your voice now. Um, and Sandhya, I mean, you were researching as a, as a research topic, basically atrocities themselves. But in your case, when you really noticed the vulnerability in the field, was not a moment of actual atrocity or, or a horrible moment was actually a, a moment of humor so could you maybe talk us through your piece and 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 how vulnerability played out there yeah i mean it's it's really interesting for me to 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 read pascal's piece and hear about her experience because in in some ways the the pieces are both about the ways in which kind of exposing your vulnerabilities as a as an ethnographer kind of creates a certain sort of bond um with, with your interlocutors, which also then allows you to kind of explore, you know, knowledge in like a very mutual and respectful way. But I think in my case, what happened was it was almost kind of the inverse of what happened to Pascal, where I went into the field and I was looking at, I was looking at basically legal responses under hate crime law to caste-based atrocities in India. And I had gone in with almost this this sort of, um, and I'd worked on it sort of partially before, but never, but never kind of this extensively on the legal aspect. Um, and I came in with this sort of almost almost this feeling of like respectful silence and this like sort of you know hesitance and the sort of need feeling that I needed to be very kind of always sensitive and careful because I was dealing with people who you know quite realistically we're dealing with massive trauma after being kind of either like beaten up or even raped because of their caste status or you know because they were vulnerable because of their caste status and um i kind of didn't I, I thought it was going to be almost like, you know, an ethnography that that had a lot of silence, a lot of like serious gravity. I think that's what I kind of expected. And what I realized was that, and this was in some ways a really uncomfortable and really kind of tricky realization because it does sound so bizarre, right? And it does in some ways actually sound wrong um, that the way I could really get people to comfortably open up with me while allowing them to retain a feeling of agency and kind of control over their own narratives of violence was to make myself sort of almost a medium for humor and like to use my own vulnerability to allow them to a certain a certain escape from the violence by joking with me and laughing with me and making putting myself at their disposal as sort of a medium for humor and i realized this um kind of initially because there was an incident when um you know I had gone to speak to a family about um like quite quite a basically that the family had been physically attacked by like an upper caste group because they had kind of stood up for themselves in in within like a wage dispute where they hadn't been paid properly and they had been like you know the 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 the, the two sons who had kind of been involved in this dispute had been like beaten up and they had been in the hospital and there was a lot of kind of trauma because also the people who had beaten them up obviously were from their own village community so similar to like what Pascal said there was like the sense of unsafety that was kind of permeating this family and I, I came there and they knew what I was working on and I came with the local activist obviously and I do speak Hindi but like there was there was kind of a sense of like okay well who, you know who is this woman and why are we telling her the story and like what does that really mean 
And um, there was like an incident where like I got really scared by a water buffalo and I like fell and I tripped and I like basically made a bit of an idiot out of myself, to be completely honest. And um, and that kind of and all the kids were laughing at me and that kind of broke the ice. And I was really concerned initially thinking, oh, God, you know, nobody's going to take me seriously anymore. as Somebody was coming to research like a law and violence and nobody's going to tell me anything. But actually what that did was it kind of humanized me in a way and like the vulnerability in a very different sense to Pascal vulnerability in the sense of like being a bit clumsy like not fully kind of being on 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 secure footing you know in kind of this like rural Rajasthani like Indian landscape at that moment and kind of not fully always knowing what to do sort of there was like I guess I hate that word but like I guess there was a certain sense of like empowerment on the other side it's interesting like listening to you both uh, I can't help but reflect on gender aspects you know I also do research in India but obviously maybe people can hear that I, I'm a man and uh, and I was, was one of the groups I did research with was auto rickshaw drivers and there's lots of um, traumatic experiences in their life um, coming out of poverty often to do also with alcoholism and, and other issues and when people did die during during the period of prolonged field work that I did and afterwards then people would get drunk and joke about it like straight away and um in the way that you know groups of guys often do like straight away like making jokes about this and that and and uh and it was only actually after the humor had died that then you know when people could actually be vulnerable and open up and actually talk about it um because it's like okay we have to laugh about it and get drunk because yeah that's the yeah sort of that's the way to to work through it um I wonder if before we talk a little bit about, I guess, a little bit more about positionality of, of ourselves and so on, maybe we can uh, try to be unpack some of the analytical ideas that are in both of your papers. I guess in Pascal's, there's this idea of reciprocal vulnerability, which is there a lot. And, and this is maybe similar, but a little bit different to what's in Sanya's paper, which is this mutual, mutuality of engagement. So um, I'm just going to open up to both of you to really talk through like what you meant by, by these phrases. Well, by, by linking reciprocity with vulnerability, I actually try to relate my own uh, vulnerability and yeah, powerlessness to the vulnerability of my research partners. And, and I, I try to, to, to trace the, also the resulting yeah, forms of, of care, I would say, and solidarity in our relationships as, as women um, in this context of yeah, patriarchal violence. And um, well, it's, it seems to me also that Sandia makes a similar point also when it comes to this Buffalo in incident and in the end her vulnerability helped her to build relationships with her yeah, research partners for which then this exchanging in a way, it's, it's a form of exchange, isn't it? Of jokes and of the laughing together um, was, was crucial. And um, and the other thing is, is probably also that, um, yeah, reciprocity um, and also in vulnerability and relies also on former networks um, and relationships or, of, yeah, of the anthropologists with their um, research partners. So the, the relationships I am writing about, they also existed long before this tragic event and they involved sorrow and joy um, yeah, before and, and after our friend and, and neighbor died. And, and um, yeah, I, I think 
it 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 was in a way also precisely because I was close to the women, sometimes as a daughter, as a sister, as a friend, uh, that I found then also care and 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 probably yeah hope then in in our relationships after um, yeah after that uh, event. So these relationships in a way they helped me also to survive to to move on and yeah to to return then also to um to my research but yeah of course i was shocked and traumatized by the violence i experienced i experienced nonetheless i mean can i just uh i kind of want to pick up on that last point um of like hope and moving forward um in explaining kind of the, the term that i'm using because i do think that's kind of the key point in all of in all of this right it's not just about okay you know whether we call it reciprocity or mutuality there is some kind of like equal access we're not just talking about that I think what we're talking about is that two things I think first of all just the the plain thing that like anthropology is the only discipline out there right and we we're hardly the first people to like oh so cleverly con on to this but which where knowledge is really produced through interaction but I think that is kind of that is at the heart of anthropology we don't go out and get knowledge but we see how knowledge arises out of the way people organically interact in the world and that's what's so special I think what that also means is that when you have people you know, researching violence and trauma and all of these things is that that the process of dealing with that is is not divided between you and the people you're working with. It's not them over there working through their trauma while you write about it. Neither is it you sitting somewhere with your own trauma of unsafety in the field while you, you know, are far away from them again or you leave or whatever or you have to produce some sort of knowledge. What it is, is that that interaction actually, it and I think that's where like the mutual, mutuality of engagement, I can't even pronounce it, um, aspect comes in. What it does, it, it creates this kind of very proactive, and I think engagement has a pro very proactive component of kind of interactively shaping each other's lives through vulnerability, but also through the hope that can be found in actually sharing that vulnerability. So I think even though, you know, Pascal is very much talking about the moment of trauma, and I'm talking about sort of trying to find escape in the aftermath of trauma. I think both of these places, pieces are at the end of the day, they are about the hope and possibility that anthropological engagement really, just on this like pure human raw level, can create and why that knowledge is then so special. Wow, manifesto, go. I mean, when I was reading both of your pieces, I was really struck thinking about moments when... Um, people revealed their vulnerabilities, anthropologists revealed their vulnerabilities, and they're sort of few and far between. Uh, I was sitting, first of all, I was just trying to write down off the top of my head, like moments I, I could remember, and there are, of course, moments in ethnographies, which, which, which I won't go into now, but then I was also remembering a moment when I was visiting the UK to a university, which I won't name, because I'm about to um, yeah, gossip about somebody, and, uh, and we had a visiting, I was at the time a PhD student, I was visiting somewhere, and we had a, there was a guest speaker, she was female and she researched somewhere in, in East Asia and then after the talk there was a MA student who was starting to get to know her in the pub afterwards because she was interested in in potentially going to the same field to do research and the uh, guest speaker she warned her that you know it could be quite it is quite dangerous there and she felt very unsafe and actually she advises her own PhD students to really think seriously if you're willing to you know um, put up with that level of, of danger and, and, and everyday violence and, and especially as a, as a woman and um, there was a elderly 
uh, male, rather posh anthropologist there. You get many of those in the UK. That's why. That's why I don't like living there. And um, and uh, and uh, and he just started telling his own story of vulnerability, but basically involved him, you know, heroically trekking across a particular landscape um, on the, you know, a bit of advice from somebody else to get somewhere else. And then everyone had a big laugh about that, like, oh, like you know, how great. Uh, and of course, all the students did because obviously that's usually the case. Like in the pub afterwards, when the professor tells a joke the students laugh and i and i think maybe i would have laughed as well but i wasn't laughing at that moment because i just happened to be having a sip of my pint and i just saw the guest um speaker just looking at him with like a proper death stare or eye roll like you know did you just not listen to a word i said you know um and so this whole i don't know um way anthropologists have always liked to write about themselves and talk about themselves as quasi heroes i know we've talked about it a bit like as in anthropology because we, we supposedly be a bit more self-reflective but we can't seem to let it go right we don't seem to want to admit that so often we feel like complete uh, completely at a loss when we're in the field because we don't know how to act and what to do but certain people can tell it and it's funny like haha look at me i was like you know i took the wrong advice and i had to trek 20 miles you know and everyone said oh what a great guy you were but other people maybe don't have the ability to, to to tell it or to write about it. So I was wondering, can we maybe talk a little bit like this? Like who has the privilege to reveal their vulnerabilities and who doesn't and to what effect? Um, I mean, sort of, uh, you know, what, what's what's really interesting to me before before we get to the, the privilege part, um, just like sticking for a moment with that like kind of heroism part. I think what's so irritating about this and I think potentially why maybe a sort of slightly more recent generation of anthropologists is almost kind of writing against that is a little bit is because there's probably no discipline that kind of when you're in the midst of it is less heroic than anthropology right it's just a and, and i don't mean that in a negative way i really don't it's just not this is not put down it's just a point of the whole idea behind anthropology is to insert yourself into life. Life is not heroic. Everyday life, which is what we look at, which is what we gather knowledge about, is the least heroic thing in the world. And I think what I think in a way maybe Pascal and I are both doing in these pieces is kind of pointing that out in different ways. I think Pascal's very much saying, look at like the pain and the helplessness we feel and let's just kind of step back. And, you know, I'm not speaking for you, so you just tell us what your piece is about. But I think well, how the way I read your piece was very much, let's take a step back, look at what we go through, what we deal with, and how certain expectations that we put on ourselves and the discipline puts on ourselves in terms of like having to be like these fearless allies are completely out of tune with the fact that we are people living in a place just with the people who are also living in that place and are scared just like them. Yeah, maybe first to, to come back to the professor's heroic tale. Um, I mean, the question is, can we really make fun of our vulnerability? So is it still vulnerability if if, if we emerge from it in, in the end as kind of a hero anthropologist? I mean, I, I don't have an answer, but I think it is precisely this tension that is haunting me also that I cannot resolve because I, 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 I really believe that ethnographic vulnerability cannot always be turned into a success story. And I think a little bit this is what the professor's heroic tale is about. Um, and yeah, by the way, this is, those are also the, the people who, who often tell you, yeah, everything is research data. 
And yeah, this may no doubt be true, but the point is that we may also encounter events during fieldwork um, that we deeply regret and wish had never happened, even though they helped us to understand local power relations or whatever. And it, it seems to me, um, yeah, that we mostly reveal um, our vulnerability only if we can represent it as an opportunity for research and data collection. So we often do not reveal our vulnerability as researchers who missed opportunities, who feel guilty, uh, whose hearts are broken, who are depressed, and uh, who can't really make something productive out of the violence probably they experience. So, um, so these more violent phases of ethnographic vulnerability are often ignored and, and suppressed. And the point is that, that this increases our vulnerability even more as we are left unable then to write about traumatizing events. And, and I think that, um, yeah, that we really need to acknowledge more that vulnerability has many faces and it is a slippery ground, if you want, for all field work. So it can be revealing, it can be enabling. Um, but it can be also very disturbing. In my work, um, there is quite a lot of kind of, I've, I've worked a lot with the literature, obviously on trauma and also on remembrance around violence alongside, particularly in relation to law, like, you know, the way people have to like turn their, their experiences of like being attacked as lower caste into a legal case and how like the, the sort of, inhibitions like the, the way that trauma kind of impedes your ability to remember in these specific ways can really kind of screw you over in a legal context and particularly in the context of a law that is actually meant to help you uh, is meant to protect you but you can't speak the language of law because you can't remember in the ways that the law needs um and i like i think i guess when you know when pascal was writing when i was reading her piece and like reading about some of those emotional reactions or like those kind of in the way in which you were not able to initially talk or write about what you had happened, I was actually quite reminded of some of the, to me, that was very much like the sort of the hallmark of kind of traumatic processing and traumatic uh, kind of issues with speak and speaking and remembering that a lot of my interlocutors had. And I guess like I was really curious because I was thinking what we have, what we don't really talk about in anthropology is, a, is how that kind of vulnerability on behalf of a field worker that kind of traumatic moment and the the sort of like the vulnerability in the sense of the things that you regret actually might shape your writing because it's not just about the assumptions that like anthropologists should suck it up and should just everything should be data but actually how is your ability to engage with your data and write about it and put it out in the world kind of impacted by the issues with remembrance you may have as as a researcher in when you've experienced something really traumatic in the field and i was just wondering if you had any thoughts about that yeah it's a it's a important question and i mean it's not it's it's again a call for reflexivity anthropology very often looks at people and how they deal with violence but what happens when the the anthropologist um, in himself experiences violence and is uh, in a way traumatized and how does this affect um his or her writing about violence i mean it, that, as I understand it, that is actually no, that, basically that, the question, no? That's exactly my question. I yeah. just spend a yeah, lot yeah. more time than you trying to formulate it. Yeah. 
and 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 I mean the the uh, I think the really important thing is that we that we that we start writing also or that we start telling these really bad stories also from our research, and, and not just ones uh, um, that yeah fit into this yeah heroic kind of tales. Um, we are telling, but really the stories um, that hurt us and that um, also make us um, appear um, weak and 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 not at all um, as professionals, but really and um, also traumatized. And and I think that is the start and really to to reflect on what we write and why we write about it and why we cannot write about it. And really to 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 see. I mean, you said it. It is always interaction. It is relationships. Probably we should think about the boundaries between us and our interlocutors uh, in a more blurred way. Uh, or we think about these boundaries as blurred. I mean, when they are when they um experience violence then we can also experience it and it when it does when violence does something with them it definitely does something with us as well and and we should write about that and and also in a way um probably when we don't have um yeah answers or last answers and this violent thing is, is also something I would like to, to ask you. I mean, you're writing about vulnerability. And first, I was a little bit um, surprised that you're talking about ethnographic vulnerability because um, you're talking about this Buffalo um, incident. And at the same time, you're doing research about people um, who have suffered um, violence in a completely different way, who are who are vulnerable in a completely different way than your vulnerability that you describe in your um, piece. So um, I would also be very interested to know how you relate your vulnerability um, more closely also to the, to the violence you researched and the violence your um, yeah, research partners um, experienced. Really also in an, as an attempt, yeah, really to, to probably blur these um, boundaries between us and them. I mean, I guess it just it directly in, res in response to that question, I think my my point maybe in the piece, and maybe that doesn't come out clear enough yet, but my point in the piece is very much that because the people I was working with were so drastically vulnerable, they were socioeconomically vulnerable, they had literally just been vulnerable to actually often like physical violence or like destructions of livelihoods and mm. all of that mm. in a targeted way, in an identity-based targeted way. They needed me to be vulnerable in a way that could give them a sense of like, not superiority, that's the wrong word, but like um, a sense of like they needed to get a sense of like authority or empowerment over their own narratives. Like, and so actually what I'm saying with this whole, like the way I'm mm -hmm. describing my vulnerability or in this case, which is kind of encapsulated by humor or clumsiness and whatever, they needed me to almost be somebody who was a daughter to them in order to get, regain a sense of sort of agency over their own lives because it had all been taken away. And, you know, it's so, and I think it's really interesting. So when you read about, you know, identity-based violence, targeted violence, because you are a certain race or a certain caste. One of the things that always comes up in literature, for example, is that the reason that's particularly traumatic is because you can't change that about yourself, right? Mm -hmm. You're being attacked because, well, it's just who you are. You are a Dalit. You are a lower mm -hmm. caste person. That's who you are. What you're going to do about it? Nothing, right? And mm -hmm. in, in, in a lot of cases that I worked with, these people lived in communities that, on the one hand, they were not sort of so upwardly mobile enough to ever like 
move away from those villages or like extricate themselves from those dependency. On the other hand, they didn't necessarily want to, you know, like like for all of the bad things that had happened to them, that was still their home. The village was what they knew, you know, they liked things about it. They liked things about that community as well, about that lifestyle as well. It was kind of like the limit of their imaginary, like in all of the possible ways, right? And so they were there and they were kind of almost kind of trapped in that feeling of vulnerability of like, we have been attacked by people from our own community, whatever. And while the Atrocities Act has not been kind of researched academically a lot, there's like a billion like legal aid activists and human rights NGOs and like local activists and politicians who have certain interests in those stories who come and they do fact-finding missions or they use it as a political platform or whatever it is, you know, and they come with this like, authoritative like that's what used to happen like we're an activist we're going to help you fight your case or we're a local you know i'm a local dalit politician let me help you like use this as part of a platform for dalit empowerment and i don't necessarily always mean that in like an evil way at all i just mean that that was kind of part of the thing but what they didn't have was somebody who they could talk to who potentially had the resources to tell their story who they could feel like they had some sort of agency over and they could direct in terms of like what they wanted told and what they wanted not to be told and how they wanted to have it told. So actually the kind of vulnerability I'm talking about, like that humor, and I think that was kind of the big insight for me. They didn't need my silence. They didn't necessarily need me sitting back or like looking at them and asking, asking for their story. They needed me to almost make myself they needed me to make myself into somebody and not not once again in a strategic way but to become somebody who could be taught who could be directed who was a daughter who kind of in some ways or another was also vulnerable and also like you know needed needed help um yeah but still what, what was there some vulnerability that went beyond that clumsiness i mean i'm, I'm still i am I mean, when you when you um, working about stories of violence and 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 which are really bad. I mean, you just told that doesn't this have an effect also on 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 um, on the researcher's emotional um, life in a way? I mean, that is not so. I think easy to 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 digest no it didn't i mean it, it was really hard and to be completely frank I'm, i don't know who needs to know this but yes i was in therapy for six months after coming back from field work um and um i did have a lot of i did have a hard time and i think there were some stories that were more like that were harder to kind of live with than others um there was one for example where like it was a woman who I was friends with this activist and she rented a, a flat from this Dalit woman whose son committed suicide after he had been tortured by three upper caste men, like actually tortured. And so I was kind of there for that. And that's, for example, a story that I, um, that is, I, I do write about that in my PhD, but it probably also, like you, took me the longest to write about that one. Mm. I think that wasn't necessary, like, all of that is there and I did leave the field kind of in some ways really disillusioned and I had a lot of, you know, a lot of these regimes I had believed in growing up, like human rights and all of that, like doubting that. And um, I just kind of, 
yeah, you know, there was there was a lot of kind of, I guess, like psychological trauma. I didn't necessarily I maybe had different reactions to you. I think I got more like low level depressed than rather than like violently, like momentarily kind of affected. Like the way you talk about your experience, like with the crying fits, I don't think I had that. I think I just kind of got mm. to a point kind of later on in my field work where I was just very kind of numb. I think mm. that's what happened. Um, I think, and I, I have written about that. I think in this piece, that wasn't necessarily what I was writing about. Yeah, 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 sure. Mm. No, it's it's just because I am I'm, I'm really linking vulnerability very much with violence, and um, yeah, I was just interested to know how you do that and whether that is also relevant to to you. So thank you. Thank you guys both so much for being so yeah open and and honest and really talking through. Uh, both your own and each of us text in such a yeah passionate and uh, engaged way so the only thing i have left to do is to thank you so much for coming on the first ever allegra resonance cast thanks so much okay well thanks for having us and yeah thank nice to meet you guys yeah thank you very much for inviting us to this conversation you've been listening to resonance cast from allegra lab Thank you so much for your ears for the last half an hour or so. If you want to find more episodes in the series, you can find them on our website or by subscribing using your podcast app. Music has been provided by Acoustic Doodles.